Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. How worried should we be about a country whose president declares it's at the point of no return and that its politicians could push it over the cliff? Or a country where one third of its people tell pollsters it's on the brink of civil war and where huge demonstrations against the government's current policies occur week after week? Or a country where its most determined enemy just signed a strategic deal with one of its new best friends? That country is Israel. My guest today is well positioned to help us understand the internal as well as the external challenges it faces, which, by the way, include increasing violence between Israelis and Palestinians that might or might not point towards a new intifada. Neri Zilber is a journalist who writes on Israel and more generally Middle Eastern politics and culture. He moves regularly between Tel Aviv and Washington. Today, he is in Tel Aviv and is affiliated with both the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, as well as the Israeli Policy Forum. Welcome, Neary, to New Thinking for a New World. Uh, thank you, Alan. Good to be with you. In the interest of not bearing the lead, let me start with civil war. Israeli politics is always exciting and occasionally violent, but headed over the cliff, as President Herzog said, real, not metaphorical civil war, is that kind of violence really possible in Israel today? Well, it's a genuine and real concern, uh, Alan. Uh, really, Israel is uh, in uncharted territory, uh, unprecedented times, especially over the past two months, uh, with the Netanyahu uh, government's intention uh, to undermine the independence and power of the Supreme Court and other legal institutions here. Uh, so civil war, uh, the country was already quite divided, uh, five elections in less than four years. Uh, Netanyahu was able to uh, to eke out a victory late last year and return to power at the head of this uh, very uh, far-right and ultra-nationalist ultra and ultra-Orthodox uh, coalition government. And their intention these days, almost to the exclusion of anything else, is to pass a slew of uh, bills in parliament that would actually give them uh, effectively unfettered uh, power to pass laws and make decisions uh, without uh, the Supreme Court or any other legal authority actually meddling and uh, deeming it illegal. And so given that context, uh, you could very easily see a situation uh, where the ongoing protest on the streets, hundreds of thousands of Israelis coming out uh, now multiple times a week to protest uh, against this, the government's plans, uh, that things could could escalate. And Israeli politics, uh, it's... Uh, Usually a, a contact sport, not for the faint of heart, uh, quite raucous even in normal times, uh, but really we haven't seen anything like the past two months uh, with both protesting and protesters on the streets uh, and also the Netanyahu government essentially uh, not backing down from its intention uh, to pass these laws. And so uh, in extremists, you could see a situation where uh, things uh, only escalate. Yes, but uh, democracy, even loud democracy, is one thing we both argue a good thing. Civil war is something really quite different. 
I want to go back to that term. You don't use it lightly. No one should use it lightly. But is it imaginable under these circumstances? So uh, that's a great follow-up question, Alan, uh, because I gave you the, the context and the overview of where we are right now. But if we play things out to where they might lead in even just a handful of weeks, if the government actually sticks to its timeline and passes this legislative package uh, by early April, then you could see in the not-so-distant future a situation where Israel is really uh, at a constitutional crisis, a grave constitutional crisis, where on the one hand uh, you have the government and by extension its majority in parliament on the one hand, and on the other side you have the Supreme Court uh, and the legal and judicial system and a whole lot of angry Israelis uh, on the streets protesting. Lead to violence. Well, under the Israeli system, and it's worth uh, emphasizing to the listeners, under the Israeli system, uh, there's no constitution, right? There's no upper house of parliament like the Senate in the U.S. system. Uh, there's no president with veto power. The president here, President Herzog, that you mentioned, uh, it's a symbolic or ceremonial position. Uh, and there's no federal system. There's no uh, free state of Florida or a free state of California that can make any kinds of decisions uh, it wants, uh, irrespective of what the federal government wants. It's all one national political unit here. So there's no real uh, structural or institutional check on the government actually passing these laws uh, in parliament. And then, as I said, you could have a standoff where the Supreme Court could say these uh, these laws, these quote-unquote constitutional amendments are unconstitutional, uh, again, in a country that has no constitution. So you could have a standoff, and then we get into a, a situation and really uncharted territory where you could have, say, the head of the military here or the head of the police or the head of the internal security agency or the head of the Mossad, the foreign intelligence agency, having to make a decision about which authority they're listening to. Are they going to listen to the minister uh, above them responsible for their uh, organization, or are they going to listen to the judges and effectively the the, the old rule of law? Uh, and that's where things could get very dicey and very, very dangerous. There are so many threads hanging out of this particular rug. I'm not sure which to pull on first, uh, but let me try one indirectly that you didn't mention, which is uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the UAE, allegedly said recently, and I quote, as long as we can't be certain that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has a government that he controls, we can't cooperate. Does Bibi control this government? So that is arguably the million-dollar question uh, and the question. Not only whether Bibi Netanyahu controls this government, but really what Bibi actually wants. Uh, so in terms of uh, him being reelected and returning to power in quite dramatic fashion at the end of last year, uh, after Israel's uh, fifth election in less than four years. Uh, again, a dubious world record. Uh, but Bibi actually uh, uh, won a parliamentary majority, finally. Uh, fifth time was a charm. And uh, at the head of, like I said, this very far-right uh, and extreme uh, coalition government. And the notion, especially from people on the outside, by the way, uh, Gulf Arab leaders like MBZ and even people in the Biden administration said, okay, this might be a more unsavory group of characters uh, around Bibi Netanyahu this time around, but we know Bibi. We know Bibi. Bibi has been uh, Israel's longest serving prime minister, uh, cumulatively uh, 15 years 
going back to the 1990s. And BB, uh, when push comes to shove, he knows how to get things done. We can do business with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, I would argue in recent weeks especially uh, that that thesis uh, has come under massive strain, where even uh, regional leaders uh, in the UAE, in the Gulf, and other places, and even officials high up in the Biden administration have come to realize, number one, uh, that Bibi Netanyahu might be, uh, might be a new Bibi and is doing things uh, that previously he would never have considered, like undermining the very foundations of Israeli democracy, number one. And number two, uh, that he may not have actual and complete control over his own government, where you have extreme uh, elements, whether uh, his justice minister, whether other key figures in parliament, uh, his national security minister in charge of the police, who's a, a far-right Jewish ultranationalist, uh, and other unsavory and quite extreme political uh, leaders in his government uh, are kind of doing their own thing and saying their own things. And Bibi so far has uh, either been unable or unwilling to rein them in. And again, it goes back to what I said at the top. Uh, what does Bibi actually want? Does he actually want to rein them in? In the past, uh, he would have. I would argue he would have. He was a lot more, uh, shall we say, pragmatic and moderate, uh, definitely in relation to maybe his uh, international image uh, where he was viewed as a, a more right-wing and, and almost a strongman uh, politician and political leader of Israel. Uh, that's, uh, in recent weeks, I would argue, uh, come come to be realized that Bibi is acting uh, very much in both action and deeds like a tin-pot dictator. Uh, and again, it's a question whether he actually pushes through uh, this package of bills that would uh, undermine uh, Israel's judicial system, uh, but we don't know. We don't know whether he's going to go all the way, but so far he hasn't shown any inclination of, of really backing down, which is uh, quite concerning. Your guess is that it's really both. Bibi has changed and he's not really in control, that he's perhaps at the head of this mob, uh, but they're pushing real hard from behind. And look, just by way of uh, of important anecdote, we should also remind uh, our listeners that Bibi Netanyahu himself is still on uh, trial in Jerusalem District Court on a slew of corruption charges. So he himself has a strong personal motivation to go after uh, the Israeli legal system and judicial system, uh, whereas in the past, uh, the old version of Netanyahu uh, was a very strong and very public defender of institutions like the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, even calling it the body armor uh, for Israeli democracy, both uh, internally and in terms of just upholding Israel's more liberal values and laws, and definitely internationally, uh, where the Israeli Supreme Court uh, was viewed as a strong and independent institution uh, that did have, say, large purview and uh, overview powers uh, over Israeli government policy. And so now Netanyahu is doing the exact opposite of what he uh, used to say uh, very publicly. And so that in and of itself is just one example, but it's quite concerning, quite concerning. And also digging even deeper on the personal side, look, uh, you talk to people who have worked with Netanyahu uh, or people who have covered Netanyahu for far longer than I have, and they don't even have a very good answer as to why and how Netanyahu has put himself, his government, and more importantly, the country that he leads and professes to love in this position where we're talking openly now about civil war. And believe me, Alan, we're not the only ones talking about civil war. Uh, the Israeli president is talking about the potential of 
uh, bloodshed on the streets between Jew and Jew. Uh, the head of the Israeli military uh, had to give a public speech yesterday saying, uh, going back on comments, he said, well, uh, better a secure dictatorship than uh, insecure uh, anarchy, right? The, the very fact that the Israeli, the head of the Israeli military has to say these things to, to countenance publicly the fact that Israel could turn into a dictatorship, uh, again, unprecedented in Israeli history. The hope for a resolution would obviously be a negotiation among all the parties that, that resets the entire framework. Uh, Israel, as you said, does not have a written constitution. Uh, the backstory of that is interesting, but it's not important to, to this conversation, the Declaration of Independence, Basic Laws, etc. Um, and I've noticed that the opposition, like a good opposition, is calling for maybe this is the time finally to write the constitution which strikes me as either impossible or implausible, I'm not sure which, but is there any chance that somehow the better angels of both sides of this divide, as you get right near with all the lemmings coming behind them, the, the, the cliff, to mix my metaphors badly, uh, will say, nah, we really should step back and rethink everything. That's the hope. That's the hope, right, that uh, right before uh, this country and the society goes over the cliff edge, that either Netanyahu or Netanyahu and his government actually pull back and say, okay, look, uh, we're willing to halt our legislative push, which is fundamentally what the opposition has been asking it to do, stop uh, with drafting of this legislation, uh, let's give it some time, sit down, and then we can negotiate, like you said, uh, perhaps an overarching and more equitable or reasonable reform package for the Israeli judicial system. Uh, so far, the Netanyahu government has refused to do that. So it's uh, it's sprinting headlong uh, into potentially passing these laws, like I said, in a matter of weeks. Uh, so that's concerning in and of itself uh, that the Netanyahu government seems uh, unwilling to sit down and talk and, by the way, stop its uh, legislative push in parliament. Uh, and also on the flip side, you know, Drafting a constitution, uh, it, it should have been done years ago. Uh, it arguably would have saved Israel from the current uh, crisis and potentially uh, future and more severe crises. I'm very skeptical that given the fractured nature of Israeli politics and Israeli society, that even if uh, they got together for uh, for a constitutional convention in the Israeli version of Philadelphia, uh, that they could actually come to some kind of agreement over the basic contours of how this state uh, should be structured and how it should function. Because now you have rising and growing numbers in terms of Israeli demographics of uh, more extreme, say, religious nationalists, uh, i.e. the settlers. You have uh, a growing demographic of ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish Israelis. And so the previous very strong and very clear majority of, say, the mainstream kind of secular Zionist demographic uh, has has decreased, and it's no longer a clear majority. So in terms of finding some kind of common ground and consensus uh, in order to write this document, uh, I'm skeptical. But again, uh, that would be a good problem to have, a high-class problem to have if the, the the government actually took a step back and was willing to to negotiate some kind of uh, some kind of compromise. Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world? who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be. If so, nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L 
B E R G Prize dot org. It's a terrifically important point that it's not just politicians who are fractured; it's the society that is fractured. One of the issues we're struggling with, not just in Israel but elsewhere, is how does democracy work in a highly polarized, or to use your word, fractured society? I've heard the argument, which is specific to Israel, made that the military model of government in the occupied territories has fostered the authoritarian mindset, particularly of the right wing. That the argument goes has colored this crisis, maybe even produced this crisis in a funny way, as it's reshaped the Israeli mindset on top of the demographics that you just described. Or is the West Bank relevant? The occupied territories relevant to? How Israelis think about themselves uh, in terms of what most Israelis believe uh, the relationship is between the ongoing occupation in the West Bank and the ongoing domestic internal political crisis. Uh, most Israelis will say there is no connection, right? That you have hundreds of thousands of Israelis on the streets, uh, many of whom have never protested a day in their lives, uh, many of whom are not reflexive right uh, left wingers. Right, uh, the usual suspects that usually go out uh, to protest against the Netanyahu government. Uh, far from it. You see people on the streets who are quite centrist in their positions. Even right wingers have come out uh, in protest against the government's uh, intention to, like we said, undermine the uh, the independence of the judicial system. So it's not a right left traditional issue in the Israeli political sense, which is uh, uh, you know pro peace or pro settlement and and so on. Like we've like like it's come to be known in recent decades. So that's what most Israelis believe, and they say it very openly. It's not an issue. This isn't an issue in terms of the protests of left, center, or right. Uh, this is the Israeli public uh, trying to defend Israeli democracy. So that's the the prevailing uh, opinion and mood. I would argue that there is a very clear connection uh, between the Netanyahu government's intentions and uh, the ongoing conflict with the Palestinians. Uh, like I said, uh, for part of the Netanyahu coalition, uh, its, it's uh, despisal of the Supreme Court uh, dates back to certain decisions taken by the Supreme Court vis-a-vis -vis settlement construction in the West Bank. Um, but it goes farther than that, I would say, that for many in this Netanyahu coalition, uh, there's a growing sense uh, that democracy doesn't have to be liberal, that you can have illiberal democracy uh, and very much a Jewish democracy, where Jewish rights and Jewish identity is elevated over things like uh, liberal values, minority rights, especially vis-a-vis -vis Arabs and Palestinians, uh, and that the will of the majority, i.e. the will of the Jewish majority, uh, should take precedence over, over anything. Um, now, you can call that state of affairs many things, but it's not a democracy. It's not a democracy. A tyranny of the majority uh, with no checks and balances over over the, the quote-unquote will of the people as reflected in whatever parliamentary majority they may or may not win and have won, uh, that's not a democracy. And so I would argue that um, uh, in many respects, Israelis have become more Palestinian, right? That they're facing the real, the real prospect of living under a government slash regime that they have no real control or say over. Uh, and that's the fear of many Israelis uh, in terms of the prospect of this legislation actually passing. Having gotten to the Palestinians, let's stay there for a moment. Over the last weeks, 
in addition to everything else we've been talking about, there's been a noticeable rise in violence between settlers and Palestinians, uh, and then the army and the Palestinians, which has led to fear slash speculation that another intifada could be coming. There's even some who are arguing it's already here. How do you think about it and how are you, how are you reporting it? So, uh, yes, uh, it's important to emphasize that really the past year has been the deadliest in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for many years. Uh, and again, it depends how you, you count it, whether it's a calendar year or not, uh, but without doubt, uh, the deadliest year for for Palestinians in arguably 15 years, uh, and also quite deadly for Israelis, uh, whether inside Israeli cities or Jerusalem or, or even the West Bank. Uh, and so you've seen this growing death toll on both sides, but we should say more on the Palestinian side by uh, an order of magnitude. Uh, and really, the the last two months, uh, the beginning of this year, the deadliest uh, in arguably 20 years. So that's just by way of context. And, and yes, it is quite concerning, quite concerning. Uh, we also saw about two or so weeks ago uh, a rampage by extremist settlers in the West Bank through a Palestinian village. Uh, essentially, there's no other word for it, a, a pogrom. A pogrom, uh, burning cars, uh, smashing shop windows, uh, burning homes with Palestinians in them. Uh, one Palestinian was killed in an adjacent village, uh, and luckily uh, no Palestinians were burned alive in their homes, uh, probably just for the uh, the grace of God uh, and not the intention of, of those extremist uh, Israelis rampaging through that village. So again, we had never seen anything like that before. Uh, in the West Bank. So that in and of itself was was quite concerning because you could very easily envision a situation where you have a mini civil war between Jewish settlers and Palestinians in the West Bank itself, uh, and then the only authority there on the ground, uh, either capable or hopefully willing to, div- to separate between Palestinians and extremist Jewish settlers would be the Israeli army, would be the Israeli army. And so that... Uh, again, uh, was quite concerning. Now, the question of intifada, it's it's a very elusive concept, and there's uh, ongoing debate uh, by both journalists and analysts who, who focus very heavily on uh, the Palestinian issue and also the Israeli-Palestinian conflict about whether we are actually in an intifada. Um, I would argue no. Uh, I would argue we're not quite there yet uh, for the simple reason that we haven't seen uh, intifada means uh, a shaking off or, or literally a literally shaking off, but analytically it means a mass popular uprising by Palestinians, similar to what happened in the late 1980s and the early 2000s. And so we haven't seen this mass of Palestinians actually joining in either demonstrations or armed violence and attacks against uh, Israeli targets. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, What we have seen is a growing number of primarily younger Palestinians between the ages of, say, 17 and 30, uh, willing to actually engage uh, in an armed fashion with the Israeli military uh, and also conduct uh, terror attacks against Israeli civilians. Uh, That in and of itself uh, accounts for a lot of the escalation in violence over the past year. And the fear and the concern, going back to the issue of an intifada, is that you have a, a, a growing younger generation of Palestinians that has no uh, real political hope or horizon for really any kind of political resolution, whether vis-a-vis Israel or whether vis-a-vis their own internal Palestinian politics, and that uh, they've become disillusioned both with their own, say, traditional uh, factional politics, uh, and they, uh, they've they also become uh, disillusioned, say, with uh, promises of, say, 
greater economic prosperity or individual prosperity, and that they're uh, uh, they're lashing out um, both vis-a-vis and against Israel, and potentially in future against uh, their own leaders in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority. I saw a poll recently by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Research, which was conducted late last year. I'm sure you're aware of it. Lots of interesting data. But what really struck me is that more than 80% of Israeli Jews, as well as of Palestinians, see themselves as the exclusive victims of, of the struggle. And 90% of Palestinians and almost two-thirds of Israeli Jews at least told the pollsters, this gives them the moral right to do anything necessary for survival, um, which is the raw material for whether it's technically an intifada or not an intifada, that can't end well. Do you feel those numbers are directionally accurate at least? And if so, then continuing violence must be inevitable, has to be. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, just anecdotally, yes, uh, both sides view themselves as as the victim. Uh, they like to play the uh, the history game. Uh, how far back do you go, and uh, where do you assign the blame? Again, that's an endless endless exercise, uh, and accounts for uh, a big reason of why the Israeli Palestinian conflict is uh, still ongoing and has been so difficult uh, to resolve. Where you have both. Um, Amongst both sides, uh, a big group that that has uh, very exclusive demands uh, in terms of land and territory and, and Jerusalem and other things, um, the more extreme elements on both sides, uh, and also the less extreme elements on both sides, uh, just a lack of empathy, a lack of empathy. And uh, it's very convenient, I would say, for either if you're an Israeli or a Palestinian, uh, to view yourself as, as the sole victim. Um, in this ongoing and uh, never-ending conflict. Uh, so yes, anecdotally, I, I think that's those those poll numbers are probably accurate. And in terms of an intifada, uh, look, um, there there are various uh, uh, ingredients that have to go into an intifada. Um, one of them is uh, a loss of hope and no real uh, prospects for positive political change. That is undoubtedly true. Uh, but the other side of it, uh, intifada requires uh, leadership and organization. So uh, the popular notion, especially from afar, but even here on the ground, is that uh, intifadas are kind of things that just erupt uh, with no real rhyme or reason. Uh, If you go back and look and study the histories of either the first intifada in the late 1980s or the second intifada in the early 2000s, um, it was far from being unorganized and leaderless, quite the opposite. And so the question really remains, I would argue, uh, especially in the West Bank, whether the Palestinian leadership, the current Palestinian leadership, actually wants to uh, to escalate and unleash uh, those uh, those forces uh, for the time being, and to their credit, the Palestinian leadership led by President Mahmoud Abbas um, is not there. Is not there, and they're actually a restraining and I would say stabilizing uh, actor uh, in the West Bank. Let's end by connecting two dots. One dot is West Bank violence. One dot is the entire conversation we've had about the domestic Israeli political and social situation. Can those two vectors interact in a way that uh, could produce a real mess in the coming months? West Bank violence, more domestic violence, civil war, perhaps. That's a witch's brew if I've ever seen a witch's brew. Uh, Yes, it's a huge concern, and I would say a not unrealistic concern. Uh, Alan, you know, you, you can't know it from our uh, 
recording conversation and, and the, uh, the camera that's on right now. But uh, the situation here in Israel uh, is unlike anything anybody has ever seen, right? There's a real sense this country is, is going off the rails politically and socially. And also, uh, in allusion to the West Bank violence, uh, potentially in terms of security affairs. Uh, and we have uh, both Ramadan and Passover uh, coming at the end of March and early April, uh, historically a period of, of heightened tensions. Uh, and so there's real concern amongst uh, Israeli security professionals and also amongst uh, Palestinian officials uh, that this could be a, a period of, of real uh, violence and a real escalation. And that's, uh, that fear, I think, is, is well-founded. Um, and you add to that now the domestic upheaval uh, inside Israel. Uh, I, I'll just by way of anecdote, uh, last Thursday, uh, the day started with a, a day of uh, national resistance by the anti-government protesters, hundreds of thousands of Israelis on the streets, uh, blocking roads, uh, highways, uh, and, and demonstrating against the government. Uh, you had the visit here of U.S. Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and Lloyd Austin uh, flew in that Thursday morning into uh, the airport outside Tel Aviv. He couldn't leave the airport. He couldn't leave the airport because of the demonstrations. So he basically had to cut his visit quite short and meet with uh, both Netanyahu and the, the Israeli Minister of Defense at the airport, right? Uh, Netanyahu, for his part, had to basically take a helicopter to the airport because he couldn't be sure he was going to get through because of all the protesters. Uh, they had a decoy helicopter uh, uh, to fool the protesters, right? This is the Israeli prime minister who can't even get to his own airport uh, without some uh, sleight of hand. Uh, later on in the day, you have the Israeli president, uh, Herzog, that you mentioned, uh, give a very, very harrowing speech talking about the country nearing nearing an abyss and uh that he that he was uh, kept up at night due to uh, due to nightmares, uh, in terms of just the scenes unfolding on the streets. Uh, later on that same evening, you had the far right uh, minister of national security in charge of the police fire the Tel Aviv district chief for not uh, deploying more violence against anti-government protesters who were on the whole very very peaceful in Tel Aviv. So you had a, you had uh, the minister firing the police chief for Tel Aviv. And then finally, that same night, uh, about two blocks away from my apartment in central Tel Aviv, you had a terror attack uh, by a Palestinian from the West Bank uh, who shot three uh, Israeli youngsters as they were uh, going out on a Thursday night for a night on the town. All of that in one day in Israel. Not a, not a great recipe for either stability uh, or anything of the sort. Neri Zilber, let's leave it there and agree that we'll come back and revisit this uh, in, in a few weeks, if not months. Thank you for having me, Alan. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>